Luke chapter 22, verse 31, begins with our Lord Jesus Christ speaking. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And now picking up at verse 54. Then they seized him, that is Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, And sat down together. Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered The saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord, our God, we ask this morning that you would reach us through your word. Mold us into the image of Christ. Show us our need of Jesus. Give us the faith we need to trust in Him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. There is a temptation that we have as we come to the Scriptures. It is the temptation to look at the people in the Bible... And to stand apart from them in judgment. To view this as a story that is before our eyes. And so this allows us to hear the story of Abraham. And to think how foolish he is to have taken Hagar. To read the story of King David. (coughs) And to say to ourselves that we would never have been so foolish as to have fallen into that adultery. To look at the apostles and to say how foolish they are that they never seem to understand what Jesus is saying. And then here this morning, to see Peter and to say to ourselves that we would never have so denied our Lord. 
But it is a far better task, I think, this morning, rather than to look at Peter and to compare ourselves to him, but rather to have the Scripture as a mirror that is placed before us that we can see ourselves in the Scripture. To see how we face the same temptations and challenges that Peter did. How we fail the same ways that Peter fails. And how we need Jesus just as much as Peter needs Jesus. This morning I would like us to see three things about Peter from our text. First, we see Peter's presumption. The way that Peter presumes that he is able and willing. Second, we see Peter's plunge as he falls face first at the temptation that is placed before him. And then third, we see Peter's preservation. How Peter is preserved by the Lord Jesus Christ for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's presumption, his plunge, and his preservation. We begin then thinking about the context for our passages this morning. Because we are about to be placed in the middle of Satan's schemes. First, we have to remember what we already know. That since the fall, Satan has been trying to ruin the world and all of humanity. Satan is a master deceiver. And he began in the garden with Adam and Eve. And he has continued to do this down through history. To try and deceive the people of God. To make them further and further away from their Lord. We also have to remember that Satan believes that he has to stop Jesus and that he actually can stop Jesus and his mission. Jesus was under attack from the very first. When Jesus was born, Satan was trying to have him destroyed through the work of Herod. And then eventually, all of the young boys who were born at about the same time were killed by Herod spurred on by Satan to try and wipe out God's Redeemer. When Jesus had grown in stature and in wisdom, Satan confronted him in the wilderness with temptation, seeking to destroy Jesus and his work by tempting him to sin. And then now here we see Satan working on the culmination of his plan. Believing that if he just destroys Jesus, if he can bring Jesus to the cross, he can overpower him and destroy him and claim victory. And so what we have to understand is that Satan only knows and understands his own view of power. We've been looking the last few weeks to see that even as Jesus goes to the cross, Satan's victory gets further and further away and Jesus' victory becomes more and more certain. Because you see, Jesus is not only perfect man, he is also perfect God. So he is completely aware of what Satan is doing. You know, often as we see in history or in fiction, part of the plan of evil and wickedness is to attack unawares. To come and surprise, to try and win the victory through deception and surprise. After all, we've even seen that in the own history of our country. 
in Pearl Harbor and in the attacks on 9-11, they were designed to be deceptive and to be a surprise and to catch America sleeping, to destroy America while she was unaware of what was about to happen. Now, the truth of the matter is, you can never surprise Jesus because He is the Lord our God. He has decreed all things. He is wise beyond all our knowing. He knows all things and can do all things. And so we have to correct a bit of our thinking because Hollywood has got us thinking in a wrong way about the relationship between God and Satan. They have us thinking in a way that philosophically has been called dualism. That is that there is God and Satan and they're just about equal. And they have to play by the same rules, except for Satan gets to cheat. This is the pattern in every film and play that we see of a battle between God and Satan. And so therefore, we think somehow that the issue is in doubt, that somehow Satan has control. But you see, the reality is the truth of what Martin Luther said almost 500 years ago. That even the devil is God's devil. There is no part of creation over which the Lord is not sovereign. And Jesus is completely sovereign even over Satan and his work. And so Jesus informs Peter and us of what is going on. He says, Simon, Simon, behold. He wants Peter's attention and he wants yours. He uses Peter's given name twice. Think of it this way in your own life. How much attention do you pay when your mother calls you by your first and middle name? You know you've got to listen. There's something important coming here. And then Jesus says, behold, or we might say in our common translation, pay attention here now. Listen up. He says, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Satan is making a demand to Jesus For not only Peter, but all of the apostles. Because you see, the you here in verse 31 is y'all. Satan has demanded to have all of y'all. The attack is upon Peter for a reason. But he wants to destroy all of them. Satan's not satisfied just with destroying Judas. He's not satisfied with just going after Jesus. Satan wants each and every life to be destroyed. He's asking for all of them. And Jesus says that Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Now you have to understand how in Bible times, wheat was processed. What would happen is they would take a room in which there was a a good gust or breeze that would flow through. And then they would begin to break up the wheat kernels. And wheat basically has two parts. The part with substance and weight that is used to make food. And then the junk. The junk that goes in the breeze. And so what they would do is they would take the wheat and throw it up in the air. And the breeze would blow away the junk and the good wheat would be left. You see what Satan wants to do is to rip Peter apart. We might put it this way. Satan wants to take you apart, Peter. Satan has been emboldened by the fall of Judas. And he wants to start with Peter and then to get all of them. Because this is his way. 
It's not just in Bible times. It's the way Satan attacks the church today. Satan attacks fathers. Because he knows if he can destroy a father, he can get his hands on a whole family. Fathers, are you aware of that? Do you know that your growth in holiness is significant, not just for your relationship with Christ, but your wife's, your children's? This is also why Satan likes to attack deacons and elders and pastors. Because he knows if he can cause officers in the church to fall, he can discourage and break apart an entire congregation. This is how Satan attacks. And so he wants everyone, but he's going after Peter. And he makes this demand of Jesus. Now that seems like odd language here for Luke to use. Because after all, Pastor, you just told us that the devil is God's devil and Jesus is in control. How does Satan get to ask or demand something from Jesus? You see, the word here for demand means to ask with an expectation that you will get the answer yes. It would be like after dinner at your house. When without even describing what will happen after dinner, once your kids clean their plate, they look at you and they say, we get to have dessert now, right? It's our right as children. There's an implicit contract. Eat the vegetables, clean the plate, get ice cream, right? You see, Satan is having this same kind of childish argument with Jesus. He says, I should have Peter because Peter is a sinner. Peter's broken your law. Peter has failed. You know when he sank in the water? Fail. Do you know when he told you that you should never die? Fail. You know when you told him just to stay awake in the garden? Fail. He's mine, Jesus. See, Satan is trying to get Peter because he thinks that Peter is a complete and utter failure already. The problem is, is that Peter is too confident in his ability to resist these attacks from Satan. He begins by relying on himself. And it's interesting, it's almost before Jesus can even finish telling him what's going on, Peter interrupts him and he says, Lord, Lord, got this. I know what's going on here. Listen. I am ready. I don't even need to get prepared. I am ready right now. And I am ready not just to go to jail. No, no, no. I'm ready to go all the way. I'm ready to die with you. His confidence knows no bounds. He's relying upon himself. Now, Peter hears this threat. It's not like he's oblivious to what's going on, but the problem is that he doesn't hear Jesus. He doesn't hear the rest of what Jesus says. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He's already thinking about what he can do. Now, this fits in well with what we know about Peter already. Let's remember that Peter is a leader. Peter is close to Jesus and he's used to acting. He acts boldly. When no one else will go out on the water, Peter goes. When everyone else is standing around, when the Roman guard comes to get Jesus, he whips out his sword and he attacks. 
But it's not just that he acts boldly. He also understands more than the other apostles. You see, we, I think, emphasize too much the Peter of the foot-in-mouth disease. Peter is also the one who confessed that Jesus was the Christ. Peter understands Jesus and his mission. And that is a dangerous place for Peter to be by himself. He is like the star player who thinks he knows everything about the game and has no need for the coach to help him at all. Coach, go help those other people that aren't as good. I know what I'm doing. I'm ready for this. I don't need your help. I don't need to seem weak. Other people need you. Go help them. You see, this is the attitude that Peter has at this critical juncture in his life. And Jesus warns Peter. He shows his concern. He says, Peter, I have prayed for you. And Jesus does something particular here. The you here is not y'all. He says, Satan wants all of y'all, but I've prayed for you, Peter. Specifically, you need me. And when you have turned again, hint, hint, after you've fallen on your face and you get back up again. Then I have a task for you. You see, Jesus is telegraphing that Peter is going to fail, that he can't do it in his own strength, and Peter is oblivious to this. He is so certain that he knows what is needed, and he has the ability that he's not listening to Jesus. He doesn't ask for any help. He doesn't say, Lord, pray for me more. Lord, give me a scripture to meditate upon. He says, I'm ready right now. And the thing about this is, Peter's danger is your danger. It's my danger. It's when we think we are beyond sin. Beyond any sin. It's when we think we can withstand temptation. It's when we look at others and we say, you know, life isn't easy. But I'll never fail in my marriage. That's when we're vulnerable. Or it's like perhaps you've had the experience or you're here now when you were new parents. And you look at others and you say, my kids are going to be perfect. I've watched and I've read all kinds of books. And I'm not going to make the mistakes that everybody else makes. I'm going to be free from all those mistakes. I know exactly what to do. My kids will always obey. They will always be courteous. They will always be clean. And then reality sets in. You see, it's when we think we are beyond any loss, any sin, any temptation, that Satan comes and he uses that to attack us. And this is especially true when we compare ourselves to others. Because it's always possible to find someone else that you can score better than. And then you compare yourself to them and you think you've got it all together. This is why the Apostle Paul says, Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Peter has too much confidence. He presumes he's able. And then of course we can see the next thing that's coming. Because you know the true and old proverb that pride comes before the fall. And so that's exactly where we go. We go to Peter's plunge. And as we're watching this scene unfold, we should be 
very concerned. We know that pride goes before the fall. We know that this is a very difficult time in Peter's life. It is sad. It is confusing. Jesus has been led to the high priest Caiaphas. He is on trial for his life. There has been wickedness and betrayal in the air. It's a cold, dark, depressing night. And then Peter, to his credit, does something that the other disciples don't do. You see, Matthew and Nathaniel and the others, they scatter to the winds. They're so afraid, they're gone. But Peter follows Jesus. He follows at a distance, but he does follow. Because Matthew tells us he wants to see what will happen. He wants to see the end. And so we have to give Peter some credit for following. But he was unprepared for what would happen. You remember, he spent valuable prayer time asleep. And the other thing that is more important is that he's following Jesus in his own strength. You see, Peter is trying to be a disciple. What is a disciple? A disciple is one who follows Jesus. But someone who follows Jesus publicly, who publicly identifies with the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, is this not one of the main purposes of baptism? To make a public declaration of following Christ, that I and my family belong to God, that we are a part of God's covenant community. All over the world, perhaps even today, there are those who make that public declaration at the cost of their freedom and their life. The news is filled with stories of someone who is baptized in a Muslim nation and who their family disowns and perhaps even at times kills. You see, this is what it means to be a disciple. A true test is our witness to the world, not just the private promises that we make to God. Because you see, Peter was willing in private when he was safe within the community of faith. But then when he is amongst others, he fails to profess Jesus. He fails to publicly identify with Jesus. Now this should be critically important to you. Because you see, we live in a world today that is hostile to Jesus, don't we? And it's very easy to declare that the Bible is true in Sunday school. And that Jesus is Lord in the worship service. But what about at work when someone asks you your opinion and you say what it is because the Bible is true? What about in a college class when someone asks you what you think of Jesus? You see, are we following Jesus? Are we meeting the test? And the challenge here of our text this morning is that if you go to work, if you go to school, if you go in your neighborhood in your own strength to stand up for Jesus, you will fall on your face. You cannot do it alone. No matter how much Bible you've read, no matter what you've written, no matter what you've memorized, you must rely and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see, Peter doesn't just fail this test of discipleship. It's worse than that. It's a terrible denial. Now think about what's happening here. Peter has followed 
Jesus at a distance. And he comes into this large courtyard. The high priest would have had a large home with an area outside. And you can imagine what Peter is trying to do. He is trying to be as nonchalant as possible and be as invisible as possible. He might be whistling, looking at the ground. You could just imagine him around the fire. This is some warm fire here, guys. Really like this fire. Just came here to be by the fire. That's it. Just want to hang out by the fire. Nothing else. Really not doing anything else. Just out tonight. Just want to be out by the fire. Right? He's trying as hard as he can not to be noticed. He's acting cool and aloof. And then, the most frightening, terrifying, chill-inducing thing happens. A little girl looks at him. And she says... You're with him, aren't you? Now think about this. Peter is a fisherman. He's a big hulk of a man. He's out in the open. He's not under arrest. He really has nothing to be afraid of. And a little slave girl, not even a free girl, is able to undo him. The boldness of, I'm ready and I'll go to jail and I'll die. Except, Jesus, if a little girl comes up to me, then I'm going to be a a wet noodle. I mean, think about that. And then what happens is, after he denies it vehemently, a second person says, no, no, I think really you were with them, weren't you? We see that in verse 58. You also are one of them. You're with those disciples that they called. And Peter says again, no, no, man, I I don't know anything about this. So Jesus is not... Peter has not only denied Jesus, he has also denied being a disciple of Jesus. And then a third person, about an hour later, Luke gives us this detail. He's a physician, so he's detail-oriented. Could you imagine what each second of the hour between the second and third inquiry felt like? Have you ever been sort of caught red-handed? And mom and dad let you twist in the wind for a while. And you're just waiting for them to say it. It's almost maddening. You know, being twisting in the wind like that will drive you crazy. Dostoevsky wrote a book about it, about someone who did go crazy that way. And then after an hour, someone says, insisting... Pressing the point. This guy is, wants to be on law and order. He's a prosecutor. He says, no, no, you were with them. You're obviously with them. You're a Galilean. Look how you're dressed. Anybody could tell from listening to you talk. Your accent. You're a Galilean. And now, Peter is afraid and he is frustrated. And he says, with greater vehemence, No, I don't know anything about this, Jesus. I don't know anything about these people. And Matthew and Mark even color it more for us. Peter begins to use foul language. He begins cursing. This is again what happens to us often when we're caught red-handed. We begin to protest too much, as Shakespeare would say. Our faces get red. Our excuses get louder. We become more and more insistent. This is what's happening to Peter. Now, what can we say about this? I think we can say several things. First, how weak is Peter? He holds out 
under grilling by a little girl for about five seconds. He immediately says, I don't know Jesus. He doesn't say, let me think about that. Give me a few minutes. He doesn't offer up an excuse. He immediately says, I don't know Jesus. How afraid is Peter? Again, he's not under arrest. No one is holding a sword to his throat. All it takes is a little girl to start him undoing all that he has boldly professed. How unconvincing is Peter? Nobody believes him. That's why they keep asking. And how complete is his denial? This is not a misunderstanding. He doesn't say, Oh, I thought you meant I wasn't with him at this day. Or I wasn't on that journey with him. Or I thought you were talking about another person. No, he makes it very clear that he is stating he doesn't know anything, anyhow, anyway, about Jesus or any of his disciples. And in this we see that Peter's fall can be our fall as well. Because we live in a world that is hostile to Jesus. And yet we have a place of safety to come to to declare our bravery for Jesus. That can make us overconfident, especially as we look out in the world and we see so many so-called Christians abandon the Bible, abandon creation, abandon marriage, abandon life, and we say, we're so much better than they are. And we beat our chests. And we are so confident that we would never betray our Lord and we would always stand firm. But you see... We can only avoid falling by trusting in Jesus, not ourselves. We're not better than Peter in this. The way that Peter is preserved is that Peter is preserved by Christ. Because you see, Jesus knows our weakness. We need to remember what Peter forgot from verse 32. Jesus knew the fall was coming. He told Peter. And in spite of the fall, Jesus told Peter that he would pray for him. And that he would turn him around. You see, this gives us a picture of how the Lord relates to us. I've got news for you. God knows how rotten you are. Your pastor may not, but God does. He knows everything that you've done that is wicked and vile and sinful. But I've got good news for you. Even with that full knowledge, the Lord loves you. And He redeems you. And He strengthens you. You don't need to hide yourself from Jesus. You need to run to Jesus. You need to trust in Him. Because Jesus here is already making preparations to lift Peter back up. Jesus had given Peter His word. Satan wanted to show that Peter was like chaff in the breeze, unworthy of God. But Jesus instead speaks of making Peter more perfect. He tells him, your faith will not fail. You will get turned around, and I'll have to straighten you out. But you will not fail ultimately, Peter. Jesus doesn't promise that Peter will be perfect, but he promises that he will be there with Peter. 
A second thing that, Pe- that Jesus does for Peter is he prays for Peter. He intercedes for Peter. He shows that he is stronger than Satan. Paul puts it this way. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You see, Jesus was interceding for Peter. Jesus is interceding for you now. You know, that's what He is doing at the right hand of the Father. He is interceding for you that you might not fall in the hands of Satan, that you might be preserved. This is the work of Jesus even now as we struggle in a world with sin. But then Jesus does a third thing as well. And it's fascinating. Verse 61, if you're anything like me as you read that, there are chills that go down your spine. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. It's interesting because Luke is the only one who records this. And I think sometimes we read that and we may think that Jesus is giving Peter some kind of I told you so look. Or some kind of, how could you blow it so bad look? But you see, that's not what Jesus is doing. And we know that that's not what Jesus is doing because Jesus is not sinning. He is not trying to destroy Peter. He is trying to build him up even as he has said. And so what Jesus is doing is Luke says he looks intently at Peter, directly at Peter. Their eyes meet. And Jesus, through that look that speaks volumes, tells Peter... I knew this was going to happen. And I love you anyway. Don't be afraid, Peter. I'm still here for you. I haven't abandoned you. I'm not afraid of you. You see, the Lord sees all of our sins. We are tempted to think that God will only love us when we are lovable. We tend to carry that into our lives... Before we know the Lord Jesus Christ, we think we need to clean up our act before God would see us and save us. And then even at times, after we have come to trust Jesus Christ by faith, to know that it is by grace alone that we are saved, we think whenever we mess up that somehow we have fallen out of God's favor and we need to do something to make it right. And our text here today tells us that's foolish. That the love is one-sided. It comes from a gracious, loving, and perfect God. Christian, if there is hope for somebody like Peter, who denies Jesus at the most difficult time of his work and ministry, there's hope for you and for me. How could there not be? Jesus will not look away from you. If you trust him by faith... He will not abandon you and look away from you. He will preserve you. And you see, Jesus preserved Peter, not just by his means, but for an end as well. Peter is preserved for Christ. You see, Jesus uses even this sin, even this failure for his own glory. Because Peter will remember this. He doesn't just remember in verse 62. He remembers the rest of his life 
what it meant that he was proud in himself and he failed and Jesus preserved him. And so Peter became a humble man, encouraging the church to submit and to follow Jesus and to know that Jesus is the only standard. And Peter was changed and he became a bold man. And the man who was a scaredy cat of a little girl in weeks, stands in the temple itself and declares the glories of Jesus. And when all the powers of the Jewish leaders come before him and threaten him with his own death, he says, I cannot speak but that which I have from God. He's emboldened beyond anything we can imagine. Because you see, Peter didn't just become sorry or sad. Judas did that. Judas was sorry what happened. Peter repented. He turned by God's grace. He didn't isolate himself. He became a man on a mission. And so we see that Peter is the first one to enter the tomb. That Peter is the one who believed in the resurrection. That Peter is the one who preaches boldly in the book of Acts. You see, Peter is preserved by Jesus because Jesus is not through with him. Are you sitting here this morning breathing that Jesus is not through with you yet? He has work for you. And He will preserve you. And He will carry you. Because you see, that is the way of grace. Jesus knows the power of the cross. He knows how weak we are without Him. And so we have this wonderful, sorrowful story of Peter. That we might know that what really matters is to follow Jesus. To seek after Him. And to trust in Him. Not ourselves. By God's grace we are saved. By God's grace we are sanctified. By God's grace we are preserved. Praise be to the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you this morning that you have revealed yourself and your will and your provision to us. Lord, there is none like you. You take away our sin. You stand us up. You turn us around. Lord, we are grateful. And we ask, O Lord, that you would bless us, that we would be ever grateful before others to declare the praises of our Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask in Christ's precious name. And all God's people said, Amen.